I'm Diane. And I'm Alex Montgomery. And we're saying hi to Emmaus, letting you know a little bit about who we are and what we're doing. Um, we are missionaries in Medellin, Colombia, working with uh, indigenous peoples, the tribal peoples who live in Colombia. And we're currently in the States due to the coronavirus pandemic, and we're unable to return and wanted to share a little bit about what's going on with us and what's going on with our people. So we're waiting to hear a final word on when we'll be able to go back to Colombia and uh, return to work with our people. And our people are still under quarantine in Colombia. They're in a much stricter quarantine situation where most of the people can't go out of their houses. Some people have returned to work, but their definition of essential business is a little stricter than what it is in the States. And so many of our friends are without, without work, without income right now. Um, so we're thankful that our teammates are still in Medellin working with these indigenous peoples and are um, able to call them on the phone and especially to provide some food relief. So they're working with some other partners to provide meals, groceries uh, for our indigenous friends, passing them out once a week and, uh, and helping minister to them and provide some hope during this difficult time. So if you would pray with us that we'd be able to return to Columbia soon, pray for our friends who are new believers, uh, who are growing, who are learning about Jesus maybe for the first time, that they would see the love of God in, in our teammates, in the messages that we're able to send via audio, um, sharing a little bit of the Bible with them, sharing a word of encouragement with them, and sharing them with them that God does have a plan and that he is the one that we all need during this time of instability, of uncertainty about what's going on in the physical world. So pray that they would see the love of Christ in us, in our teammates, and that we'd be able to go and, and share that love face to face very soon. Thank you, Emmaus. Thank you. Bye. All right, good morning again, Emmaus. Thank you uh, for connecting like this and the chance to sing together, the chance to watch these videos. Right now, if you would, take your Bible and open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our study about who is God. And so kids, if you have a Bible in front of you and you need some help finding where the book of Ephesians is, Ephesians is right in that middle of the collection of Paul's letters in the New Testament, so you're getting toward the end of your Bible, and we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, and really we're going to tie it together with chapter 1 and chapter 3 of Ephesians, talking about who God is and what it means to worship Him, what it means to praise Him and pray to Him, and what that looks like in, in our lives. As we get started this morning, a couple of notes. First thing I'd let you know is if you would like to receive those uh, prayer updates regarding the ministry that's happening in Columbia, if you just reach out to me, send me an email, owen at emmausokc.org. I'll get you connected with that family if, if you are uh, committed to, to praying with them and for them and the things that are happening. Jim and I will help you make that connection so you can get added to their, their missionary prayer email list and, and be aware of what's going on. Let me also remind you, it looks like the weather is, is going to hold out at least for a little while today. And so this afternoon at 2 o'clock, anytime between 2 o'clock and 5 o'clock, we're going to have a prayer walk here at the church facility again. And so you can come up here. 
Different prayer guide from last week, so don't feel like, oh, I came last week, I don't need to come this week. We have new prayer guide, new prayer prompts. We're going to take you around the property and give you a chance to pray about God's work in our church, about what's happening in the world around us. The people that came last week, I know many of you talked about how much you enjoyed getting to pray, which was very important, but also just getting to see one another and encourage one another. So let me also remind you that if the weather doesn't hold out, or you don't feel like you can walk around the property, just the, the walking around process would be, would be too much because of physical health, you can drive around and pray. We have in the prayer booklet guides for, hey, this is where we want you to drive, stop, pray about this. So don't let walking or bad weather stop you from coming up. We'd love for you to come and be a part of that. Also, Next Sunday morning, we are going to begin to regather in person here on, on Sunday morning. Let me say up front, and we're going to say this several times throughout the week and the best we can, if you don't feel comfortable coming, or especially if you are sick or in a vulnerable situation or have been exposed to someone recently who's had the coronavirus, we, we encourage you to stay at home. We're going to continue to live stream our service just as we have in the past. We're going to live stream what will be our 9 a.m worship gathering. And so we'll be in here at 9 a.m. If you want to come at 9 a.m. to the building, we're going to have procedures set up that you can come and be a part of what's happening here at the building. But if you're going to be at home, we're going to live stream 9 a.m. If you're not ready to watch at 9 a.m., the beauty of YouTube and Facebook is that as soon as that live worship gathering ends, 10.05, 10.10, that video will be immediately available. So don't feel like, oh, I missed the 9 a.m. video, I can't watch the service. You're going to be able to access it. But then we're also going to have a second in-person gathering at 10.45. What that's going to do is give us time to clean, to get people out from the early service and in for the second service. And so you can come to the building next Sunday morning in person. Come and see people and be able to worship together, gather together in that way, 9 a.m. or 10.45 a.m. next week. We'll send some more details. We want to be as clear as we can. And again, this is not an us versus them, those who came versus those who didn't come. We are in this together, Emmaus. We are in this together for the glory of God. And so we're going to focus on that, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, this gets our attention right now. The goodness and greatness and love of our God and his work in our life, his work in our church. Let's talk about this. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. Pray, and then start back at the beginning of the chapter and work our way through. So let's do chapter 1, verse 11. Here we go. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together as we start this morning. God, thank you for the joy of being able to sing about your work in our lives, your work in the world. God, thank you for what it means to gather together for prayer God, thank you for people who are watching in their homes, 
Many people I know who are watching on vacation or trips or they're just outside spending time with each other but able to watch and be a part of this. God, I pray that this morning you would remind us why we praise you. You would remind us why we can call out to you in prayer. God, that as we move ahead as a church, that we move ahead for your glory and your glory alone. And God, this morning, remind us what that looks like. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about at your house, but at our house, we really enjoy those Guinness Book of World Records. I remember as a little kid just pouring over those Guinness Book of World Records, always fascinated by, by what records have been set. And you might even watch some of those Dude Perfect videos where they're setting random world records. I think that's an unspoken goal in our house that somehow we would set some type of, of world record that would go in the Guinness Book of World Records. But those type of books, there's one record you may not be aware of, but I want to make you aware of this morning. For a long time, until recently, a man named Stephen Woodmore of England held the record for saying the most words in one minute. Stephen was able to recite a passage from Shakespeare in which he could speak, and you could understand in some way, 637 words in one minute. So Stephen Woodmore hold the, held the record for a long time of saying 637 words in one minute. When he was asked about this, he said he developed this skill when in elementary school he got in trouble for talking too much and so his teacher as punishment made him memorize and recite certain passages to the class. Now, I'm not one to judge any teacher because you guys who teach in classrooms have the most difficult job on the planet, but if your kid in class talks too much, why would you give him a punishment or an assignment to go and talk more? I don't understand that, but that's what Stephen's teacher did, and so he developed a skill that made him the world record holder for most words in the minute. 637 words in a minute sounds impressive unless you have young children in your home in which case you hear 637 words a minute all the time. So it's not that, not that impressive. Um, when we think about piling word upon word, there's another record that's pretty incredible. The longest run-on sentence in English literature, so the longest run-on sentence, kids, periods, are your friend, use punctuation marks, but the longest run-on sentence is 13,000, 955 words long, covering 33 pages. Almost 14,000 words in one sentence in Jonathan Coe's novel, The Rotters Club. That's incredible. Not to be outdone, since the 1960s, there have been Czech and Polish novelists who write novels that are one sentence long. One book, the entire book, one sentence long, and Above all of them, there's a French author who wrote a one-sentence novel that went for 517 pages. That's a run-on sentence. One novel, 517 pages long. Now, why talk about that? Because this morning, we're going to look at a pretty impressive run-on sentence. When you open your Bible and you open to the book of Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, you're looking at one sentence. 
And the question we need to ask is, why does Paul overflow with words? Why does he use 202 words over all of these verses, one sentence long, to talk about who God is and how he works in our lives? So we're going to talk about that. Look at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Let's get into these verses and look at what is one incredibly impressive run-on sentence. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now what jumps out quickly, obviously, there is the threefold repetition of the word for blessing. Uh, This phrase that begins, blessed be, or some translations will start out, praise be to the God, This phrasing is what would a very common type of Jewish prayer or Jewish prayer and praise to God. If you want to see another example of this in your Bible, you can actually find another example of this at the beginning of 1 Peter. So if you open up to 1 Peter and you look at chapter 1, you're going to find it beginning in very much the same way that Paul is beginning with this prayer and this praise to God and this type of prayer that would begin, blessed be, blessed be the God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. That's obviously a key point here in, in the text. You also see this Trinity idea coming through so clearly. We've talked about God as Trinity, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can see that right here. The God and Father, God is Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is Son. What kind of blessings has he given us? He's given us every spiritual blessing. How do we know that that's referring to the Holy Spirit? Well, when you get to the end of this prayer, down at the very end, verses 11 through 14, you're going to find references to the Holy Spirit. And so it's Paul's way of of bookending this prayer with references to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then he will end the prayer in, in the same way. What has God given us? He's given us these blessings. This is the key phrase, in Christ. If you are a Bible underliner, or kids, you're learning to underline in your Bible or circle words in your Bible, the key phrase here is the phrase, in Christ. And really, you could take all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and in some way, you can summarize them as in Christ. This, now we're going to talk about some controversial words, some controversial ideas this morning, but do not miss the phrase, in Christ, because this is what holds it all together. This idea of being incorporated, in solidarity, in connection with Christ. This is a phrase that it's really hard to explain, and I've struggled a little bit to even know kind of what wording to use to explain it to you, but just think about the fact that my hope is in Christ that I am all in, that he is where I find my hope and my salvation and my confidence. It's really a phrase of security and stability. Where do I look for salvation? Where do I look for for hope? I look in Christ. Now this is helpful, especially if you're thinking about teenagers, college students. We know we celebrated our graduates last week. There's all these statistics about how kids will leave the church when they get their driver's license or they'll leave the church when they graduate. Remember, if Jesus is just something you believe in and the church is just a place that you go, you probably will leave at some point. But if your life is in Christ, if he is the core and the identity of who you are, and church is not a place you go, but it's a 
people that you participate in, belong to, it's part of your identity, you're not going to leave that because that's where your stability and your hope is found. And so what we find here is all of these blessings that God has given us, he's given to them to us in Christ. And what kind of blessings are they? They are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, meaning the blessings that God gives us are not dependent on the circumstances of this world. They're not dependent on what we can touch and feel and hold on to such that when we lose something, we've lost that blessing because the blessings that God gives us are these spiritual blessings held in the heavenly places. This helps us when we look around the world and people will use hashtag blessed in social media posts. And many times in the world when people talk about I've been blessed, it's something of this world. But Paul is reminding us here, we give praise to God because the blessings that he has given to us are blessings that are secure in the Holy Spirit. They're not dependent just on the conditions of this world. Now look what happens when you get into verse four. What do we know, what's our response to this? Paul says that even as we receive these blessings, even as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, here's where we start to get into some of the controversial language and some of the things that can cause confusion. What does it mean that we have been elected? What does it mean that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world? And again, I know that this can cause a lot of confusion, and we're going to talk about that throughout the sermon this morning. But right here, up front, I want you to see how for Paul, this is an element of praise, that for Paul, this is an element of confidence and security that our coming to God, as Jaron prayed about earlier, is not our idea. We didn't come up with this plan. The plan of salvation, the plan of God blessing us in Christ, the plan of those coming through the power of the Holy Spirit, we didn't make that up. It was God's work to choose his people in Christ in order to pour out his blessings upon them, and he's not making this plan up as he goes. He's not fumbling along like I often feel like I'm doing in sermons, like, oh no, what's gonna come next? It's not like we're making this up as we go. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world. Now when you see that language about being elected, or you see that language about being chosen, one of the best ways to make sense of that is to remember that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we find this language all over the place that God chose Israel to be his people. And what Paul is showing us here in the New Testament is that to be the people of God is to be in Christ. That we have been chosen as the people of God, not because of our own doing, but our choosing that we are found in Christ. That continues to be the phrase that helps us make sense of this language of being chosen or being elected. Look down in verse 5. If chosen wasn't controversial enough, here comes the word that really gets people riled up. Verse 5, in love... God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now remember, I know you're seeing periods in your English copy of the Bible, but this is still just a continual run-on sentence as these phrases pile up. Here it says that God has predestined us. Now notice, you're going to see this word show up a couple of times in the passage, and both times 
it shows up in context that has to do with our family relationship with God, with being the children of God. So instead of being this crazy, controversial, confusing idea, when Paul talks about predestination, he immediately links, us, links it with what it means to be a child of God, with what it means to be a part of the family of God, that we have been adopted, that that is not our work, that it's God's work that he's done, and he has adopted us as his children, as his sons, through Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to see, Emmaus. Here's where this begins to open up and you see where the sermon is going. What is the result of being predestined to be the children of God. What's the result of that? In verse six, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Where does election, where does predestination, where does being the children of God, where does that point us? It points us to praise. For Paul, when he reflected on who God is and how God works in the world, the result of that was praise. The result of that was calling out to God in praise and in prayer. Look down in verse 7. What do we have in Christ? What is ours in Christ? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Every good thing that we could have in Christ is expressed here. As Paul is saying, this is what God has given you. Instead of being turned off by the idea of God's election or God's predestination, Paul's saying, realize what it means for you. And let me say specifically that if you're watching this morning, I know we're talking about a lot of theology and I wanna communicate this in a way that that is simple and understandable, but if you're watching this morning and you are unsure about your relationship with God, you're unsure about Christianity, you've not been saved, you're not sure about being a follower of Jesus, can I let you know that right here in this verse, these are the promises that are laid out for you in Christ. That we have been redeemed through his blood. That we have been purchased. That Christ was not forced to go to the cross. That he went to die in our place for us that we have been forgiven of our trespasses, that you don't have to continue to make up for your past, that you could never make up for your past, that the goal of religion is not about getting your life together, it's about the fact that we have forgiveness, that we have been made clean, that we've been made new in Christ. And I love the wording here, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, unlike me, God is not the type of father who goes to the dollar bin at Target. Hey, guys, just go pick out something at the dollar bin. That'll be great. Like, I'm going to lavish. God lavishes his grace upon us. To understand who God is is to understand a father who overflows with love and goodness for his children. If we don't see God in that way, we don't understand really what Paul is giving praise for here. That God has given us more in Christ than we could ever deserve, than we could ever imagine. And he's poured it out through his Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the significance of that in a minute. And so I just want you to know, if you've been turned off by religion, if you are uncertain about what it means to be a follower of Christ, understand here that the God who created you, 
desires to be your father who pours out every good gift that you could ever need into your life and that is found in Christ. And what it means is we turn to him and say, I need that. I trust you. God, would you do that in my life? Would you give your grace and your forgiveness and your redemption to me in a way that I could never deserve? Look down in verse nine. That in God's wisdom and insight that we have, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All of those phrases there are, are piled together to let us know that when you think about history and when you think about the universe, all of that is focused toward Christ. Christ is the summary, and Christ is the goal of all that exists. That if you wonder, man, where are things going? Like, we live in a messed up world. We live in a messed up time. Where is everything going? Paul reminds us here, you can praise God because everything is going toward the end that he has purposed. And everything is going to be summed up and fulfilled in Christ. And so if you're looking for stability, if you're looking for where this is all headed, it is headed to a, fine, a finish line, I should say, that is found in Christ. And that finish line is actually eternity, which is an inheritance that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. Look in verse 11. It, it flows over into verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Again, watch this word show up here. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's go on to verse 12 here as well. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, you see predestined, and it's used in a context that has to do with our inheritance. That we have been predestined in Christ for an inheritance that we could never deserve. That we, it, it's not ours to give. An inheritance is something that is passed on because we're a part of a particular family in this case, it's a part of being the family of God. With what result? Verse 12, that we who are the first to hope in Christ, there's our response to what God's done in Christ, that we put our hope in him, might be to the praise of his glory. When you think about what God has done for you in Christ, when you think about eternity and the inheritance that lies before us as the people of God, what's the result of that? It's praise. It's that we overflow with praise to this God who has done these things. Look in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, hear the human side of this, hear the human responsibility, our response to God's work. When you heard the word of truth, the good news of salvation, and believed in him, put your faith in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here's the Holy Spirit making another appearance about how God is working among his people. It says that you were sealed. This is a word that also has to do with being marked. It can even have the idea of being branded. It's about ownership. It's about identity. It's about our security that, hey, we have been marked off as the people of God. Not because you wear a Christian t-shirt or because you attend church or because you wear a cross around your neck or because you follow the Emmaus Facebook page. None of those things. We have been marked off as the people of God because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes to live and reside and work in our lives at the moment of salvation. 
This is not for something for people who are further along their faith. This is something that happened at the moment that you trusted in Jesus. And I don't know about your story, obviously, of watching in and, and knowing what's going on in your life, but a lot of people struggle with doubts about their salvation. They wonder, was I ever really saved? Do I know what it needs to be saved? You lay awake at night saying, am, am I really ready to stand before the Lord? Do I know what it is to be a part of his family? The way that scripture answers that question is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is the mark, is the identifying factor that yes, you're a part of the people of God. Look at verse 14. Because, why do we know this? Because the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, that coming inheritance, that eternal inheritance that we've talked about beyond death, he is the guarantee of that inheritance until the time that we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word guarantee that shows up there is the word for down payment. The Holy Spirit at work in your life, the Holy Spirit at work in our church is God's guarantee, his down payment that this is not the end of the story. That yes, I'm at work in your life. Yes, I'm at work in this church. Yes, I'm at work in the world through the Holy Spirit as a sign to tell you that this is not all that there is to it. That there is so much more to come. And when we realize that, what does it result in? It results in the praise of his glory. So when we talk about election, when we talk about this God who adopts us into his family, that he didn't make up this plan, but he predestined this plan, what's the result of that? Where does that lead? We're gonna talk about that for the rest of this time because I think that if we can understand this question, if we can understand who God is and, and what that reality creates in our life, then it changes the way we think about church, it changes the way we think about Christianity, and we're gonna go at it by tackling those words, election, chosen, predestination, because it's so easy to get sucked into two extremes on this. There are people who predestination and election are everything to them. It, it, it defines everything about their lives, everything about their faith. It is the overwhelming factor in their life. And then they're on the other extreme, people who are very embarrassed by those concepts. Uh, find those concepts hard to imagine when they read about them in the Bible. What, what's election and predestination doing in here? And we begin, we begin to run away from that. And both extremes are bad. We, we hold on to those as great gifts from God. It's the stability of our faith and our salvation, but neither do these conversations begin to overwhelm us. And let me see if I can explain it like this. Let me see if I can explain it. Use an illustration from back in the 1700s. So here's the illustration. This illustration is used in a book that one of my friends from New Orleans has written recently, an incredible book, highly recommend it to you. But a part of this book, he tells the story of George Whitfield and John Wesley. So in 1733, George Whitfield went to Oxford University in the UK to study. And when Whitfield got to Oxford in 1733, he was invited by a man named Charles Wesley to be a part of a religious group, a religious club that was meeting there on campus. And the leader of this religious club was a man named John Wesley. Charles's older brother, John, was a professor of Greek there at Oxford, and he led this group. And so this group was known by several names. Uh, they were made fun of by, by other groups. But because of how they did their business, the name that stuck was the name Methodist. 
So you have George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley there at Oxford University in the 1730s, a part of this religious group that became known as the Methodists. Now, after Whitfield left Oxford, he came to, to America. Oh, let me I get that backward. The Wesleys came to America first. Whitfield stayed in the UK. And in both cases, in the middle of the 1730s, both George Whitfield and John Wesley had these powerful conversions to true faith in Christ. They realized that they had never truly experienced salvation. They had never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They had these conversions, and they began to preach these incredible revivals. And John Wesley and George Whitfield become two of the best-known revival preachers in all of history. But during this time, both men begin to develop really strong beliefs about election and predestination. George Whitfield becomes really steeped in Calvinism. He becomes very steeped in the idea of the Puritans and the Reformers, and he becomes really strong on predestination and Calvinism. John Wesley goes the other direction. He focuses a lot on free grace and free will and begins to read Jacob Arminius, and he goes in this direction. And in the process, these two men who had been friends and who had worked together, their relationship begins to grow apart. John Wesley preaches this famous controversial sermon on free grace, and he publishes it. And when he publishes it, it causes this huge divide between the two men. But Whitfield, not to be outdone, he begins to write and speak against Wesley. And so you have these two figures that are going against each other. And Whitfield takes stuff from their private correspondence and begins to make it public. And as often happens, two camps form. And, and the, two, the followers, the camps of these two groups begin to clash. It gets to the point that Whitfield will not even extend the right hand of fellowship to Wesley. He won't even acknowledge him as a brother in Christ. And what happens in the process is that the outside world starts to watch this, and you have journalists who are not followers of Jesus, and they began to look at this fight between Whitfield and Wesley over predestination, and they begin to say, if that's what those men are fighting about, I don't want anything to do with it. And they begin to call Whitfield and Wesley deluders and cheats and frauds. Thankfully, though, one of their friends steps in and begins to bring reconciliation between these two men. One of their friends steps in and says, we've, we've got to come back together. And over time, they didn't change their particular beliefs, but over time, these two men came back together. And they got to the point that they attended the same conferences together. They did ministry together. They preached in each other's churches to the point that after Whitfield's death in 1770, John Wesley is actually the one who preaches two of his memorial services um, in the UK after the time of his death. What I want you to hear from those stories, though, what I want you to hear from that story of Whitfield and Wesley is honestly, you could see that story playing out in 2020. It is so easy for people to divide over this issue that we were talking about this morning. A God who elects, a God who predestines, instead of bringing us together, often divides us and, and takes us apart. So let's talk about this for a second. When we are talking about God's election and God's choosing, number one, it should never create pride. It should never create pride. A doctrine that, if anything, should make us more humble 
should never lead us to be more prideful. A type of pride that creates division among churches, among believers in Jesus. Uh, it, let's just be honest. If you're going to be prideful about any doctrine, I would not pick this one. Because when you start to peel back the layers, when you start to look at this, this is hard. This is confusing. You have all these Bible verses that seem to support both sides, and you're trying to make sense of this. If you're going to be prideful at a doctrine, I, I would not pick this one in particular. And, and certainly, when you're thinking about a doctrine that shows up in a part of Scripture that is meant to create unity and love for one another, if your theology causes you to make quick enemies— and causes you to divide from the body of Christ, it's probably not good theology. And so if anything, when we talk about these th concepts, it shouldn't lead us to pride. And the other extreme, it shouldn't lead us to be passive. Some people hear about election and predestination, and they say, well, God's just gonna do whatever he's gonna do, so I, I shouldn't do anything. And what happens is you don't pray, you don't share your faith, you don't reach out as part of the body of Christ. You're not engaged in what God's doing because you've taken to an unbiblical extreme something that Paul has shown us here is meant to lead to praise. Predestination, election, shouldn't make you grumpy or boring. When Paul talks about predestination and election, he needs a 202-word sentence to overflow with praise because of God's work in our lives. When he talks about predestination and election, by the time he gets finished, he's adopting children, and he is uh, branding livestock, and he's just overflowing with praise because of God's work. It doesn't create pride. It doesn't make us passive. What does it do? It drives us to praise, and it drives us to prayer. What should good theology do? As we learn about who God is, and I know it's easy to take a sermon series like Who Is God and say, Owen, what's the practical nature of this? Why, why are we going through these sermons? Because if we get this right, if we understand who God is, good theology always drives us to love God more. Good theology also always drives us to trust God more. How do I know that I'm growing in my faith? How do you know that you're making progress in the Christian faith? Are you praising God more than ever before? And are you praying more than you ever have before? When we know God, we will praise him more and we will pray more. The God who is eternally giving and unchangeably good, the God who has created all things and is making all things new, the God who reveals himself to us in Christ, who speaks to us, this is the same God who loves to receive the praise of his people. This is the same God who loves to hear the prayers of his people. Good theology will lead us to praise, and good theology will lead us to pray. Now let's think about this for a minute. I want to kind of unpack praise and prayer using two phrases that Jesus uses when he talks about worship of God. And these two phrases are in spirit and in truth. If we do this well, Emmaus, what does it look like us, for us to praise God? What does it look like for, for us to pray to God? We will do these things in spirit and in truth. When we talk about in spirit, we mean that we will praise God and we will pray to him from holy lives, from lives that have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are not just human things. This is not something that we do on our own. This is the work of God's spirit among us. And we will do it as those who are overflowing 
because of God's work in our life, those who are passionate about God's work in our life, those who understand God's love for us and we wanna share that love with others and return that love to God. And so when we talk about praise and prayer, we are talking about a work that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also do this in truth. This is that spirit and word combination that we talk about so much at Emmaus, that if we lose one, we completely lost the other. That when we worship, we worship in spirit and in truth. That when we praise God, when we pray to God, we want to do that with true biblical words. We want the songs that we sing, we want the expressions that we give before God, we want our prayers to be based on his word and to be based on true lives. The worst feeling and, and many of you can identify with me on this. The worst feeling is when you feel like you are trying to praise God or you're trying to pray to God and you feel like a total hypocrite. You're like, these words that are coming out of me, my attempt to engage with the church, my attempt to pray in my bed at night, man, it feels fake. And when we get in that point, we realize that more than anything, we need the work of God's Spirit at work in our lives. We need to be transformed because when we praise Him and we pray to Him, we want that to come from authentic lives. When we talk about praise and prayer, sometimes it's helpful to talk about these concentric circles. So it begins in my life. It begins in my heart. And then it goes out to another circle of these things should happen in our families, in our homes, uh, parents, grandparents, don't miss how praise and prayer are the building blocks for your kid's faith. You think about the way we learn faith. You think about the way we learn what it means to be followers of Jesus. How do many of us learn those things? Through songs, through music, through praying with other people. If you're trying to grow in your faith, don't be embarrassed of learning how to pray. Learning how to pray is actually part of how you grow in your faith. So many people were like, I don't want to pray, I, I, feel, I feel awkward. Who, who doesn't? We're, we're praying to the God of the universe. It, it, takes, it takes time to grow into those things. Learning to praise, learning to pray are signs that we're growing in their faith. It's, it's part of what God uses to build our faith. So we do that in our home, we do that in our small groups, and we do that in our churches. Because when we praise and we pray, we're not only doing those things up toward God, we're doing those toward one another. And praise and prayer strengthens the church. Let me say that again because I know it's hard to watch these things at home or wherever you might be right now. The reason praise and prayer are so important is because they strengthen our bonds with one another. They draw us together in a way that other things can't do that. And so when we are praising God and we are praying together, we are drawn together as a church. And not only that, but when we do those things as a church, that is part of how the gospel goes out. How do we share the gospel? How do we spread the good news of Jesus? When we praise him together and when we pray together. And that leads me to where I want us to close. I want us to close in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. How is it that God would bring a church together to praise him and to pray to him? How does he do that? And then from that, other people hear about the good news of Jesus. Let me show you how this works. This whole section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, watch how it comes to a conclusion here at the end of chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according 
to the power at work within us, the power of the Holy Spirit of being in Christ, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We can't do a sermon series about who is God and skip the word glory because the word glory is so important in understanding who God is. When we talk about the word glory, it's a word that can mean something that's heavy or something is weighty, something is important, that we understand that this thing has substance, it has weight, it has importance. When we talk about the glory of God, it's not only the weight or the substance of something, but the word glory has to do with something shining out, with something overflowing with light and life and love. And so we talk about the glory of God. He is the most important. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who overflows with light and life, and love. And so we think about his glory, but what does it mean when we talk in church about giving him glory? We obviously cannot increase the greatness of who God is. He, he is all perfect, all glorious. We don't increase that. So what does it mean to give him glory? What it means is we ascribe to him the glory that is already his. We acknowledge, might be a better word that if the word ascribe doesn't work for you. We acknowledge the greatness of who God is. But here's the part that should make your head explode. Here's the part that you should say, how is that the case? Look at verse 21. To him be glory. We acknowledge his overflowing light and life and love. To him be glory in the church. How has God purposed that his glory would be shown to the world through his church, through his people who find their hope in Christ and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You should be saying, whoa, time out. In the church, do, do you know how much we struggle? Do you know how weak we can feel? Do you, do you know who makes up the church? That the church is not this building, obviously it's the people, but do you know me? Do you know you? How is it that God's glory could be shown in the church? And yet, this is the promise we receive right here. That if we know the God we claim to worship, if we know what it is for him to work in our lives, we will see that the way he shows his glory to the world is when he works in his people. When he transforms us into the type of people who can then overflow with his light and his life and his love to the world around us. That our calling as a church is as we praise him and as we pray to him, he would cause his glory to go out. And so as we wrap up this morning, Emmaus, here's what I want to say to you. Not to us, oh God, not to us be the glory, but to your name be the glory for your loving kindness and your faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, made with human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell anything. Hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. Nor does any sound come from their throats. Those who make these idols become like them, as do all who trust in them. 
But you, O Israel, trust in the Lord, for he is your help and your shield. You, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, for he is your help and your shield. You, Emmaus, trust in the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. Our calling is to be people who know our great God, who experience his work in our lives, and then we explode and we overflow with prayer and praise to him because he is worthy of all glory. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed about the calling that you've given us in Christ. God, that when we think about what it is for you to work in the world, when, you think about, when we think about what it is for you to work in our lives, God, that the result would not be pride, God, that the result would not be disunity or passive, apathetic lives. But God, I pray that we would overflow with praise, that we would overflow with prayer. God, that that would happen in our lives, it would happen in our homes, in our small groups, in our church, as we share our joys and give praise to you, as we share our concerns and call out to you in prayer. And God, as you do that work in our lives, we believe that that will spread to the world. That your light, that your life, that your love would go out from here to our neighbors and to all nations. God, we give you praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amaius, thanks so much for being a part of this this morning. Hope to see you this afternoon, anytime between 2 o'clock and 5 o'clock for the prayer walk. And then uh, next week, if you're able to be here with us, 9 o'clock and, and 1045 are the options. God bless you. Have a great day. Happy Memorial Day weekend as well.